0: Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Doctor Matt Woolley. Uh, you got a scientific minute for us? Is this something new?
1: Science minute. Okay, I love it. I don't know. Is it? Should we call it that? Or should what, we? whatever you want. I mean, I this is
0: you, you're bringing it to the you table. You know,
1: sometimes I like to bring up little sciency. Sciency is one of my favorite words, and I believe I made it up. And I love sciency things. Uh, and so I was looking at science-y headlines, mm-hmm. as I often do. And I saw that naltrexone, which is used for uh, what? Overdoses. Yes. It's help helped people uh, recover, you know, and stay stay clean from uh, narcotics and yeah. alcohol, right? Uh, oh, and then,
0: so that is the one that where you can yeah. take it in a shot or you can take it in a pill, yeah. and then it, and it kind of kills the euphoria it's feeling. It's a blocker. Yes. Yes.
1: And so it blocks the opiate receptors. hmm in your brain and so it's often it's a common help to help people get off of opiate addictions heroin whatnot and alcohol as well and so it's used commonly for that it's been used in trials here and there for chronic fatigue syndrome and now there's they've had a little bit of success with success with a few cases on the covid long hauler syndrome really where these people have i don't know if you've talked to anybody who has that i i have several patients who have not fully recovered a year or two later from COVID. They're very tired. They're fatigued, similar to chronic fatigue syndrome. And so they're saying this now? Well, it's possible. So it's it's basically there. there is no solid scientific support yet, but the cases that have been done with it have been successful. And so they're going to start on bigger trials because there are thousands of people with this COVID long hauler uh, syndrome, which can have different types of symptoms. But one of the main ones is fatigue.
0: That's the amazing thing about science is is that, you know, one drug is designed for this, but they find out it also benefits this. Right. I mean, I, I think uh, if I'm not, maybe I'm wrong and I'm often wrong. Isn't that how we got Viagra?
1: Yeah. Viagra, Prozac, <laughs> a lot of these were for other things. Viagra was a heart. It uh, was intended to Help the heart and then they found out it was like hey yeah it was really helpful yeah. and, um, and now if there's somebody know.
0: around the who goes hey you know this viagra stuff's really good for my heart yeah.
1: <laughs> it's it's a it's a twofer yeah, that's- and uh, prozac a lot of people don't know was originally developed or the intention was as a diet pill to help people curb their appetite because actually still uh, a significant people portion of people on prozac uh Lose weight just because they their appetite goes down, but they found out it doesn't work well enough to really do that. But it improves people's mood quite well.
0: I love it. Serotonin science is amazing. Can't stop science. You can't. Can't yeah. stop. Won't stop.
1: Can't stop. Won't stop. That's Miley Cyrus. That it. Well, that's what she I was came up thinking. With. Beastie Boys.
2: Ooh, that is right. Yeah, man, she
1: ripped off the Beastie Boys. Wow. I'm old school, man. I'll I got gotcha. you, Miley Cyrus.
0: Hey, so there's a lot of times that you'll come in on the podcast and you'll say that people will come up to you in public and ask questions about me. Yeah, it's common. And, and they'll want to know. I'm frankly
1: sick of talking about you.
0: Well, good, because I'm t- I'm sick and tired of talking to <laughs> yeah, about you. You know how many people recently, I mean, in, in, in the last two months exponentially more people have come to me and wanted to talk about therapists and therapy and trying oh, to figure yeah. out how to get into
1: it. How to get in, And, yeah. and
0: is Dr. Matt Full? Is he taking on clients? And, and, and I do remind him, I go, you know, he, he, his therapy is not really in the world of addiction.
1: Right. I'm not an addiction therapist. Um, I know plenty of them and uh, be happy to redirect people that way, um, but... If you work in mental health pretty much in any capacity, you're going to end up having a lot of experience working with people who are struggling with addictions in some phase of their life. A lot of the people I work with, not all, are older children and adolescents and young adults. And so that's a time when people are first starting. So I end up having those conversations a lot with people. But uh, if, if a person's looking for an addiction specialist and they're not sure how to how to find someone. I'm happy to return a message and direct them in the right way.
0: Because I get it all the time, and, and I don't want to bother you with it, and uh, but I do because we're friends, <laughs> right? But I, I wanted to take some time here to talk about how to find a therapist and, okay. and, and kind of go down that list and how we get into that world. Because for for a lot of people, they don't understand, and and, and surprisingly, I think a lot of it needs to start with your health coverage. And yes. if you if you if you have a health provider. Uh, and you've got an HR department, call them up and, and find out what, yep. what the benefits are, and then that will lead you in the right direction and see what's in your network. Now, if, if nobody's in your network and nobody helps, I mean, I'm not saying don't go to a therapist, but right. this is a good place to start. Yeah,
1: uh, that's a good point. I, I like to tell people, like, big picture, therapy is going to be most helpful uh, if you have easy access to to therapy, meaning two things. Can you afford it, and is it close to you, Is it accessible? Now, a lot of therapy can be done online. Um, I do think that that can work. Uh, I, I have some good success with it in, in our practice at the U. Um, but I also like in-person therapy is probably the best. But so meaning if, if you live in Brigham City, and it's an hour and a half drive to get to your therapist, then that's a four-hour commitment for therapy. One hour for there, three hours of driving. That's probably not very practical. You're going to go a few times. So you want to find somebody that's close to home and or can do telehealth. And, uh, and then the other one is affording it and uh, because therapy should be fairly regular. Like a regular doctor's appointment might come up every six months But therapy, at least in the beginning, should probably be weekly. So I say to people what you just said, and that is start with do you have health insurance? If you have any coverage at all, talk to whoever the manager of that is in your life and find out what your mental health coverage is. You might be a little dismayed because uh, big insurance companies – um, I won't throw anybody under the bus like Blue Cross Blue Shield, and they sometimes will do carve-outs for mental health. So it's like, oh, I've got, I've got the best insurance, except for mental health, and they carve it out to some little company, and they give them eight bucks, and they have to manage oh, 10,000 people. And so you want to find out what you have. A lot of times, you can get a partial coverage for more visits, and so you may end up paying a little higher um, you know, copay when you come in, but that's worth it. Um, there are also um, places uh, that will do sliding scale fee. So if you don't have insurance or you have poor insurance, uh, then you can come in and say, this is how much I make, and you just verify that, and they'll give you a, a smaller fee for that. Now, but, is there
0: a uh, like a, a central location? Uh,
1: like uh, how many different kinds of therapists are there in the world? That's a good question too because I, I hear this all the time. People will say, you know, like you're a therapist. Well, in the state of Utah, there are – four main types of mental health therapists that are licensed. You have psychologists that do therapy. You have social workers that do therapy. You have licensed professional counselors that do therapy. I'm not 100% sure how you become one of those. I think it's a master's in something. And then you have licensed marriage and family therapists. Um, and so believe it or not, it's it's legislated by each state who can become an Independent therapist. So, not all just like not all doctors do the same thing, not all therapists do the same thing. So, you do want to find out like uh, you want to have a what we call um, a presenting problem or the question like, this is what I'm seeking therapy for
0: anxiety, and, addiction, yeah. pornography,
1: infidelity. Uh, yeah, whatever it happens to be. You're feeling depressed, you're struggling with social skills, social life, negative thoughts. Yeah, those kinds of things. And you want to find somebody who has uh, experience or expertise, hopefully certification in what you're looking for. For example, if uh, sometimes I get referrals and the main presenting problem is an eating disorder and uh, I'll see that that'll come across my desk. Would you see this patient? And this is their main presenting problem. And my answer is no that is not my specialty. You really should see a specialist. So I'll refer them on to somebody else. And any therapist that says they can treat everything, I would say be a little wary of that person because they probably can't. That doesn't make any sense, right? Um, For example, my main specialty is cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety and mood disorders. And I tend to work a lot with younger population. I have some older patients as well. But um you know, if somebody came across my desk and said, you know, they have, they're worried about anxiety and how it's affecting them, I'd be like, you bet. I'll work with that person because that's my specialty. So, yes, you want to ask questions. I am a firm believer in being a, a good consumer of your own health care. Don't just walk into an office and expect them to know what to do for you. You have to go in and tell them what you need,
0: and sometimes that
1: means being honest and open and really talking about what's going on. Always being honest and open. It is so not fair to your therapist if you're like, "Well, we've been visiting for six months, but I never told you that I've been shooting up heroin." You're like, "Okay, well, how'd you expect me to know that?" You know, like, like um, sometimes we're pretty good at mind reading, actually, but not always. So you need to, you know, you get out of it what you put into it.
0: Okay, uh, and then another thing I think people need to know about therapy is that it's it's kind of like yoga or meditation. The more you do it, the better the results. Like a lot of yep. times, people's like, I saw a therapist twice and they didn't do jack.
1: I know. That's my favorite. And
0: I was like, well, you only know, we saw them twice. <laughs>
1: like, were they a Jedi? Cause they the first, to,
0: yeah, know. the first one was just really getting to know each other and yeah. examining the problem. And yeah. then we're going to figure out a plan and go that way.
1: Yeah. So what would you be in for if you're going in for the first time to therapy? I would say you probably want to plan on having 8 to 12 sessions before you really know if it's going to be helpful to you. A lot of it has to do with how open and honest you are right at the beginning and finding a therapist that feels like a good fit for you, meaning a have they worked with lots of people who have your issues and maybe they're certified in some of those specialties and then b and here 's where it gets a little personal is does it feel like a good fit like does it naturally can you open up to this person do you like do you like their style but you have to you have to work with them for a while mm-hmm. to know if you feel comfortable with that person um, There are a lot of brilliant therapists out there that you may not make a great fit with and that's okay to bring up to them too um any therapist that gets their feelings hurt needs to go get a different job so like just i would just tell them just be like you know what i appreciate your time but i haven't felt like this is a good fit here are the reasons why um it's not personal it's not personal do you think you could help me find uh somebody else i love it yeah so but i i'm glad you're bringing this up today because it's a i blame mental health uh the professional side of it for not having uh, more education for people. We we complain like about the stigma of mental health on our side, but I'm not sure we do enough to promote uh, anti-stigma information and and have easy access for therapy. And um, so I do know there are big efforts through certain systems. I work through the University of Utah system, and they've dramatically in the 20 years I've been there increase their outpatient opportunities. We have more outpatient clinics and we have, you know, different programs now to get people in more quickly and more people staffing so that you call and you talk to a real person. But um, there's a long way to go to help people find easy access. And one of the things that people don't know is there are a lot of the companies that people work for have a lot of free therapy available through you know on a short-term basis and then if you need to go to long-term therapy they can help you find that too so you got to open your mouth ask questions there are more opportunities available to people than people think there are you gotta be advocate for your own health now you
0: might not believe this but it's true when you talk i listen and if I remember, you gave us a little bit of a life hack. Uh, if you're wondering uh, how to get into a therapist, and if you've called a the therapist lately, you realize that there's a waiting list. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to get into one, in, especially in a timely manner. But mm-hmm. if you go to your physical physician, your doctor, they can family use, doc,
1: GP yeah.
0: family doctor they can usually uh, expedite that a little bit.
1: Correct. Well, it's a good it's a good place to start, especially if you have a good relationship with a pediatrician or a family practice doc because they know people and they make referrals a lot and it's always better to get a personal referral than to just make a cold call on anything probably. And so if you don't know where to go, open your mouth to your family practice doc and ask them to help you. And a lot of times, since they're not there to typically assess those sorts of things, they often, some of them do ask about it, but a lot don't. And, if if you ask them, they would be like, oh yeah, great. Let me help you with that. You know, so
0: well. I you know over the past three months, really uh, a lot of phone calls, a lot of texts, a lot of Facebook messages asking about Doctor Matt and his services, and if we know somebody that's in their area yeah. that can help, because people don't know where to turn.
1: Well, at this point, um, I'm I'm pretty busy. Um, I never say I will never see anybody else, but I am pretty busy, and unfortunately, the wait list is pretty long. Uh but what I can promise I'm more than happy to do is help sort of direct people in the right direction, give them referrals to 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 individual therapists or to agencies uh because I would like anybody who's thinking right now that that might be helpful to them um to to get out and do it. I'll tell you a quick story. Yep. So uh there's uh I have to do this and maintain confidentiality, but there's a person that comes and sees me and it's a it's a dude and he's kind of the opposite of the sort of person you'd think that, uh, you know, would go to therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's what he thought, too. And he sort of got pressured into it by his mom, even though he's one, okay, of, those, mom, he's go. one of those adults. You know, he's an adult. And he's very manly, you know, and uh, does a very manly job. And he's a cool guy. But the other day, he sort of sheepishly said to me, he's like, you know, I really like just coming in and what do you call it processing and i said <laughs> i said yeah that's that's what we call it and he goes i don't know why but it just as i talk things through with a person with you and and we kind of kind of come to i always understand things better and it just it's so helpful he's like i really like coming and uh i i was so happy to hear that because you know, it goes against the stereotype of... Grown up host, a manly man. We don't talk yeah, about our feelings. Talk, yeah. I got the
0: answer. If I open my mouth, that's the answer.
1: Right. Rub some I mean, that's, I mean, on that's, it, that's, move I'm, on. Don't talk about it. Yes. Yeah, be tough. Yes. Right? And the truth is we're not having, you know, you know, crying sessions every week. We're actually having deep, meaningful conversations where he can process some important things in his life. And I can tell it's helping him. And I was really pleased to have him, you know, just kind of emit out loud that it was helping him too so you know it's fun to it's it's a hard job but it's fun to be a therapist when you have moments like that gotta
0: be rewarding
1: and i i think if you're honest with yourself you're listening to the show some of the times you felt best in your life have come on the heels of talking honestly with somebody you trust you know whether it's uh you know a significant other a best friend a family member a church leader if you have you just really opened up and kind of talked things through that were that were pinging around in your head you felt good you realize we're more alike than we are different
0: definitely i love it hey we've got a wonderful guest for you today her name is sammy anderson i've known her in the recovery world ever since i got into it she's got an amazing story are you ready to tell it
2: yeah most definitely
0: we'll hear from sammy anderson coming up you're listening to
1: project recovery
0: Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt William. Our guest today is Samantha Sammy Anderson. How are you?
2: Good. So
0: I've known Sammy for four years right out of recovery, and I took the marketing job for Pinnacle Recovery. Oh, yeah. Uh, We'd have these events maybe once a month where all the marketers would get together. And the reason we would get together is because if uh, you were coming to my house or I say Project uh, I mean Pinnacle House and didn't have the right insurance, I didn't want to leave you hanging. So I would take you over to another person's house who maybe took your insurance. And so there was a lot of swapping that would go back and forth to make sure we could get the care provided for those searching for it, right?
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And then uh, I, 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 I lost the job at... Pinnacle, and uh, found some other jobs and then got my TV job back, and and the podcast has been going nonstop, and uh, I got the chance to get you on the podcast, and I'm so excited. How are you?
2: I am good. I'm good. It's been a while since I've done anything like this, so a little nervous, but Good. Good. So how
0: long, how many years of sobriety do you have under your belt?
2: So I have six years. Actually, I just got six years September 30th.
0: Congratulations. That's awesome, amazing. Thank yeah.
2: you. Yeah. So
0: before we find out how that all came to be, where does the story of Sammy begin?
2: Oh, goodness. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I mean, I grew up in Sandy, and we had a stay-at-home mom, and it was great. My dad provided for the family very, very well. Um, I was involved in like competition soccer. I did piano. I had a little brother and sister. It was a very happy home. Beautiful. And um, as I grew older, um, I started to notice my dad suffering. And what I mean by suffering is he would be drunk more often than not. And um, I mean, I was a daddy's girl. I remember one time like he shaved his head And I bawled because he didn't look like my dad anymore. I'm all like, I just cried hysterically. So I started to notice my dad to slip away. And I started to notice um, my mom and dad fighting a lot more. Um, And I remember specifically even sometimes coming to his rescue because I didn't understand why my mom was always mad at my dad. She was just always mad at him. And he didn't understand. And so I'd run in. I'm like, it was my fault. It was my fault. So
0: you almost took on the protector role.
2: I did. At a very young age. I mean, I was 10. And so I'd be like, stop yelling at my dad. Like, this was my fault. That's why we were late. He was picking me up or something like that. And then... I started to find my dad's uh, vodka bottles around because he would hide them Um, because my mom would dump them out. So we'd hide them. So I remember he had drove a Subaru and there was like, God, this is like a sad story. So he would drive around with us kids, you know, and um, he'd be like, oh, do you hear that in the car? And we're like, no, he's like, something's wrong with the car. And so he'd go under the hood and I remember peering underneath the hood under like the little crack and watching my dad just drink, drink vodka.
1: Wow. Yeah. So
0: he would stop the car and open up the hood and where he had stashed vodka bottles. Yep. And then we'd drink them and then be like, okay, it's good. And then
2: get back in the car.
0: Holy cow. Wow.
2: Yeah. Wow. And uh, my little brother and sister didn't really know, you know, but I, I knew. And so then I started like hunting for these vodka bottles that he hid everywhere because I'm like, my dad's sick. I need to get rid of these um
0: so you started sleuthing yeah (laughs) started sleuthing around the house because you thought that's the reason he was getting in trouble and truth be told there was probably some of the reason he was getting in trouble
2: it was yeah and so i thought again like if i got rid of this my dad would be okay
1: when you're saying sick which i get but did did he change his demeanor change a lot when he was drinking
2: oh yes so actually he was very kind to me when he was drinking but then he started getting very paranoid Mm. Um, and it was weird. My mom, I think she was prepping to leave him because she suddenly got a night job. So she, like, brokenheartedly left us kids at home with him at the nighttime, and she got a night job. And so he started getting really, really paranoid, and he wouldn't let us go out of the house after, like, 6 p.m. So I'd sneak out of my window, and this was, like, at 11, to go hang out with the neighborhood kids, and I'd be out, All night long because my dad would be passed out drunk. Um, And I would still go to, like, soccer. I was still doing my soccer games. They they meant a lot to me. And my dad, again, would start, like, kind of embarrassing me because he'd be, like, yelling at the sidelines. Mm. And it just got to be uh, too much. So one particular – there's two particular things from this that I remember. So when my dad got really, really bad – um, I remember his eyes and skin were yellow. He had pools of blood in his limbs, and he couldn't, like, form sentences. And my mom just had had enough. Um, was he
1: still working at that time?
2: F- yes. Wow. Yes. He worked at a, a trucking company. He was very high up in in that pl- trucking company, and they had given him a couple chances. I remember them doing an intervention and we're like – you need to go to treatment. And they had me there to ask for some reason. I wish well, they didn't. I mean, uh,
0: we know the reason why. Yeah. Uh, probably because you were the closest to him and had the biggest impact.
1: And What did they want to ask you, though?
2: They they had me ask him to please go get the help. Oh,
1: they they wanted the you to put I the had- pressure on him. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And he looked at me and said, how, no. How old were you? Oh, this was still 10, 11. Wow. Yeah.
1: That seems unfair it Before was a little unfair yeah,
2: yeah. yeah i remember it and he just told me no i can't yeah. um but he still had a job at this specific time and my mom dumped out his liquor it was on a sunday and uh she almost killed him on accident because withdrawals yeah yeah he yeah. couldn't walk and he had to crawl to the hospital so he we went to highland ridge and he had wet brain and he couldn't form sentences and we went and visited him And I remember I wasn't mad at him at all. I remember just feeling so happy that my dad was getting help. Like, oh, my dad's not getting sick anymore. He's getting help. And I was too young to really comprehend it, wrap my brain around it. But I remember just feeling relieved. Um, And he left there, and uh, he drank again. So my mom left him, and we moved. I transferred schools, and, and this was middle school, and I couldn't play soccer anymore because my mom mm-hmm. could not afford it. And she, we didn't have transportation to even take me to like uh, – Practice? Yeah. So, so it was competition. So that cost money. But then there's like the recreation leagues, but she couldn't drive me anymore. And I had to watch my little brother and sister. So at this point – So now
1: you're parentified. Yeah. Yes. There's a lot of that. And, you know, what's really hard yeah, – the 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 diseases and decisions of parents. Um, I mean, I know it's hard to be a parent and we struggle with our own things as parents, but it makes lifelong impacts on children. And, you know, if you have to move schools for good reason, you have to. But if you think about all the change you just described for a little middle school person, that's a lot. You had to leave your neighborhood. You had to leave your school. You had to I assume leave friends because yeah. you, you you know didn't have that support system anymore. You weren't in your favorite soccer. I assume piano lessons might have gone by the wayside as well. Oh, yes. And now, like Casey points out, you're acting in a parent role uh, to watch the younger brother and sister because now we have an overwhelmed mom who has to try to work to provide for these little kids. I mean, boy, that's a lot of stress.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And I would just hear her cry. Because she was a stay at home mom and now she's working two jobs. You know, it was a little rough for her, but yeah. and for me, um, I remember I that's when my depression started. So at 13, I remember I just wanted to die every day. Like I would go to school, come home, sit in a dark room and just listen to music and I just wanted to go away. Like I just wanted to die. And so I remember, um, When I say if like drugs saved my life, because they did at the time, right, they took away that constant, I want to die. But I was um, exhibiting like uh, behavioral stuff at school a lot. Um,
1: Did you ever attempt suicide?
2: I did cut myself quite frequently um, with intent. And I, I would like Cut myself, go stand in the shower, so I would just bleed. Mm. Yeah, I was found that way. Um, so yes, I did. Um, and my mom didn't really know what to do. I mean, no one knew what to do then. Even my school, like there were like these blaring alarms, red flags everywhere, everywhere. Like help, help, help. But it, it, it wasn't really done. Um, I remember I had to take, like, this two-hour test because I got in so much trouble at school that I was actually uh, kicked out my ninth grade year. And I had to take these, like, psychological tests to see what was wrong with me.
1: Did they say, like, what did you do to be kicked out of school? (laughs) if you don't feel feel comfortable that's okay
2: Uh, no it's a it's a little rough so i was diagnosed with impulsivity disorder whatever that was
1: um impulsivity yes it's like adhd impulsive type yes
2: yes and so uh i was in sewing class and i thought i had scissors in my hands and i thought it was like funny for some reason to hold it to a girl's Neck area and asked her if she wanted to die. And I didn't even know her. And the thing is, is I went home that day. I went to school the next day. I didn't even remember doing it. And they're like, why are you here? You are kicked out. Like, you need to be off the premises. And I was like, for what? Like, for what? I don't yeah. I don't remember doing this. And so they explained it. I'm like, well, I mean,
1: think about that though. Like I'm sure you've talked about this in your therapy and stuff, but if you think about a little person who's struggling with thoughts of, you know, not wanting to exist anymore, wishing they were dead, going through self harm, struggling with depression, the impulsivity would come in acting out those feelings, right? You don't really have anyone to talk about those things with. You're so young that you can't process that alone. Uh, maybe at any age, you can't process that alone. And so when kids act out, the reason I asked, what did you get kicked out for? Is I, I wanted to know was it this sort of behavioral stuff that's your, it's your own stuff coming out in bits and spurts. And, and that's, you know, in the old days, they talked about good kids and bad kids. And I think hopefully nowadays we understand the kids that are acting out in a way that we would have the system would have labeled them bad in the past. Those are kids, that's an indication of exactly what they need. You put scissors to her throat and asked her if she wanted to die in this sort of impulsive way, scared her. But it's like, well, that that's a direct window into, to your needs at the time. Right?
2: Yeah. You explained it perfectly, to be honest. Yeah. So
1: what did the psychological tests do for you?
2: Uh, that's when they diagnosed me with ADHD. Um, Impulsive
1: type, yeah. yeah. We we like to say the type nowadays.
2: Good. Yeah. (laughs) But that was it. You know, like there's... So they
1: just labeled you and let it go? Yep. And then you got back into school. (laughs) Jeez.
2: Yeah. I had to be homeschooled. And by this time, my dad had gotten sober. Mm. And so he would... We'd meet at the library every day and I'd do my assignments. And my God, we would just argue. Like I just could not look at him anymore i was just like this is your fault still and uh yeah no therapy came actually what they did was send me to like anger management like six classes of anger. okay (laughs) because i had anger issues but not really right i was just dying so the problem
1: with that is sending kids to anger management in situations like that is you're just trying to tell them don't act out yeah. But there's no effort at getting to the, the core reason why is this child acting out, right? And ADHD, I mean, lots of people have ADHD and they don't necessarily do unsafe things. So in, in your case, it should have been a little bit more like, hey, let's do some therapy, uh, anger management along the way, sure, but, you know, getting to the heart of the things because you, like you mentioned, you're angry, resentful with your father, which makes sense. Uh, Did you try, did they try you on any medications for ADHD? No, No, they didn't even offer that Wow. No.
0: So you're listening to Project Recovery. We're listening to Sammy Anderson's story. She's talking about her early upbringing, but at some point, in case you didn't hear it, she said drugs saved her life. We're going to find out what that means coming up in just a few seconds. Welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott, Dr. Matt Woolley is in the house. Our guest today, Sammy Anderson. How do drugs save your life?
2: Oh, wow. Well, um, for me, it was I didn't have to feel anything at all.
0: Do you remember the first time you tried uh, alcohol or a drug?
2: Uh, Kind of. Maybe not the first time, but I remember like the first go at it, and that was definitely seventh grade. And in Sandy, there's like this goalie. Have you guys been to Sandy before? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So there's this goalie
2: (laughs) that is like by just down the heart of Sandy. So it's like by every school. So I went to like Eastmont. There's the goalie, Um, Jordan, goalie. Anyway, so I drank there my first time. And I'm guessing
1: that's a popular Sandy location for drinking. It is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's the spot. Yeah. Um, And I remember just getting so obliterated and pr- probably puking, like, but I was like, cool, I don't want to die. <laughs> so, like, let's just keep doing this. So you were self-medicating. Yeah. Yeah. I and know that's what really you mean. Definitely.
0: When you said uh, drugs saved your life, because you said before that you would go home and sit in a dark room, listening to music and pray to die. Yep. And... Uh, All of a sudden you find alcohol and it releases you from those pains and those thoughts and lets you, I guess, for lack of a better term, live a little.
2: Exactly. So my drinking with friends, going out, doing things, getting obtaining friends by drinking, um, smoking weed, doing all the things. Um, But it was like super young that I was doing those. Um, And because that made me feel so good... I didn't really say no to any drugs at all, as they came my way. Does that make sense? Like I was oh, yeah. never a no. I, I
1: think that's common.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, my, I don't know if it's common. I, I, I think
1: at that age it is, though. Like if you common for her situation, she's a depressed young person who life isn't going well, and she's full of anger and resentment. And she's young and impulsive. Oh, yeah, definitely, I think.
0: (laughs) So anytime something was presented, you'd be like, sure, let's give this a shot.
2: Yeah, why not? Why no? And so I tried very hard drugs. I mean, by ninth grade, I was obtaining and using like crack, methamphetamines, opiates, all of these things. Not on a regular basis, but anytime, which sounds crazy. And you had an opportunity, you just went for it. I did, absolutely. Because you wanted to feel better. I did.
1: Yeah.
0: And so now, by ninth grade, crack, methamphetamines. Uh, you're you're homeschooled because of the incident at school, yeah. uh, and your mom's working two jobs, but your dad's sober. Yes. Do you think your dad knows which path you're going down?
2: He absolutely did, and we talk about it to this day. He absolutely did, and he said like his amends to me because he got s- sober in the 12 Steps of Alcohol Anonymous was to be ready when I was ready.
0: Uh, it's kind of touching. I can see it's, it, it's making you a little bit of emotional. Yeah. Um, but you weren't ready. No. That's probably why you guys were fighting and arguing.
2: Not even close. Like, I didn't want to hear it at all. Like, I... You're still angry. You're
0: still blaming him.
2: So bad. And even at this point, like, I thought I knew better. You know, when you're young, you just know everything. Mm-hmm. That's that's really who I thought it was. That's
1: the last time I think I knew everything.
2: Yeah, Was, when I was you were young? middle
1: school, yeah. Yeah. I knew everything. Now I'm 48 and I don't know anything. <laughs> Thank
2: God I don't know anything. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> I right? don't want to know it all, but so I knew.
0: Does it escalate? From, you know, from ninth grade. What does your high school years look like?
2: Oh goodness. Uh, so in high school. I went to Alta for a little bit because I wasn't allowed to go to Jordan because of that incident. Still, I had to wait till my junior year. um, And that was really, really tough for me because uh, I went to Indian Hills Middle School when everything was great. Right. And Indian Hills goes into Alta High School. So all the friends I had at Indian Hills hadn't seen me in all these years. And I come back to Alta and I am something else right i'm just not the same person remotely close to where i was and i just did not like it were you into all. like
1: a certain like did you dress a certain scene
2: yeah.
1: like how what, did they even recognize you how did you dress what were you into with that age
2: punk rock okay. absolutely yeah. punk rock gothic music like emo anything
1: anti-establishment that, yes Yeah,
2: I just – anything angry that screamed, I was there for it. Um, And that was a scene too. And so I would go to like concerts all the time with people that were like my age and way older than me and we'd all be drinking. Um, I had boyfriends that were older than me. I was just not – You are rebelling. I 100% was. I don't think anyone really knew what to do with me. Oh, because of that incident in the ninth grade, I also – was a part of the criminal justice system mm. because of that as well.
1: Did you have, like, a case manager or
2: stuff like that? No, probation officer. Okay. Yeah, um, and I was originally charged with a felony, and they dropped it down, thank goodness, with the attorney because they are just, like...
0: Yeah, ninth grade.
2: Yeah, like, she's a child.
1: Yeah, if you'd have done that in the 80s, they would have just told you to go home and think about it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> if you were as old as Casey and I. You know. But I think it's better. So that
0: now you're in high school. Uh, you're reunited with your uh, middle school friends. Yeah. Uh, you're punk rock this, you're punk rock that, you're punk rock everything. Yeah. Uh, you've got a probation officer. I do. A sober dad. Yes. And a lot of anger.
2: Correct.
0: And so what, how does that manifest?
2: It manifests. I go get a job at Scone Cutter and I stop going to school. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm done. I'm done. This is uncomfortable. Um, and I just kind of want to go do what makes me feel comfortable, and that is just getting obliterated. But I took pride at work. I've always been a super hard worker, and I think that's because I saw immediate outcomes of a positive thing inside. And so I always have just worked hard. I've had an incredible work work ethic. Um, so I got a, that job at 15 and I've pretty much held a job every day since until way later in life where or...
0: it really goes off. Yeah. So you keep that going from 15 until about what, when does it start to unravel for you?
2: Okay. So at 19 and 21, I get DUIs. So I was driving. Pearl? Yeah. Two. I was driving while drunk and, uh, lost my license, had to be an alcohol restricted driver. And that's, that's when I was like, you know what, I am becoming too much like my father and I can't stop driving drunk. I'm not drinking anymore. So I stopped drinking.
1: Just like that?
2: Yep, and started using everything else. I was going to say, <laughs>
1: the look on your face was like, uh, well, she went the other way. With it. Yeah, yeah, But you know, So you stopped drinking because you didn't want to be like your dad, but you didn't want to stop partying.
2: Exactly. I didn't want... Look at myself. Was
1: it still the way you felt good? I mean, was that still your uh, your treatment of choice? Yes, it was. Is that we just come up with a new th- doc? Treat- now it's T-O-C. Yep, toc 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 treatment, T-O-C. T-O-C,
0: treatment of like choice. I like that yeah. talk.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: when you say everything else, uh, did the drugs get harder?
2: Oh my goodness, yes, they did. Um, so Dare taught me something in elementary school, and that was that heroin was used with needles. Stay away, and so. Fast forward, I pretty much went straight to IV opiate use. Um,
0: did you start off on pain pills and then migrate over to heroin, or did you go straight to heroin? A
2: lot of people have. That was their story. They were prescribed it. I mean, I started with pain pills, but not because they were given to me by a doctor. I I would just get them. Um, but it but was. But you didn't go to
0: heroin because you couldn't find pain pills, and pain pills were too expensive.
2: Exactly.
1: I'm a little confused about what you learned from Dare, um, which might be a statement I say a lot because I don't know how effective Dare is. But so so Dare taught you to stay away because he needles. So you were like, "I'm gonna do that."
2: Yeah. Well, no, they kind of associated heroin with needles. With needles, right? Yeah. So like, if you're gonna use heroin. It's with a needle. Oh,
1: I yeah. think you missed the point, but yeah, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> okay. you were like, "Is this an instructional <laughs> program?"
2: What did it, I learn in there?
0: Uh, oh yeah, yeah needles. I need needles. That's how you needles. use it. That's yeah. how
2: you use heroin. So right? you decide heroin's
0: gonna gonna be what you're, you 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 migrate to?
2: Yes, and uh, I did, and that ooh was rough. Um, and thank God, thank God, it made my life so hard. <laughs> Thank God, because uh, I wouldn't have ever gotten better. I think if I had used, uh, like, just remained on alcohol, it would have been a long, hard road. It already was, but, like, super long.
1: I believe that, but tell us what you're thinking. Like, why Why did, Why did? would you have thought that might have been a longer road for you? It's
2: socially acceptable. There Even when I was getting my DUIs, my, I, like, I was still allowed to drink around family because they would drink certain family members not sure my dad. um because it's socially acceptable right and i right. could still go to the bar and you know they
0: sell it at the gas station grocery store everywhere sporting events
2: and like i'm not necessarily like walking around with this giant target on my back that i am sick it takes quite a few years to like right. look at an alcoholic and say you're super sick yeah Um,
0: So when you get into heroin uh, and you say your life got really bad really quick, what time frame are we talking about?
2: Oh, let's see. So 19 – well, I guess 10 years on and off.
1: So from your 20s to your 30s?
2: 28 is the day I got – like 28, I got sober. Okay. Finally. And that's like after – Constant run-ins with the law, being incarcerated, um, constantly on probation. Well, running from probation. I never, like, did what I was asked. Um, I never checked in. Oof, Are hanging... these
1: from, like, drug possession charges, mm-hmm. things like that?
2: And so I, thought, I find it a little comical that my mind frame was like, oh, my God, my third DUI would be a felony. Like, I'm too much like my dad. I need to do something else. And then... My drug of choice is possessing it. Is an automatic felony. Mm. You know what I mean. So every time I would just get in. Sounds trouble. like this
1: relationship with your dad kind of haunted you throughout your teens and twenties. It did. Sounds like a lot of your decisions were sort of in reaction to these unresolved issues because you were a daddy's girl, and then you saw how your dad's addiction destroyed the family. Everything. You know, if that's okay for me to say, it sounds no, like it is. that. And that uh, he was always that was always on your mind.
2: It was as much as it could be.
1: Yeah. So how do you pay for heroin? I mean, it's
0: got to be. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but it, it, it's it, it's an expensive
2: drug. It was, yeah. Uh, how did I pay for heroin? Anyway, I could really. I didn't really. St- so I like put myself on this pedestal because I didn't steal from like people or my mom yet right um but i dated men (laughs) i dated men that didn't use narcotics i dated men that uh i wouldn't normally date does that make sense Mm -hmm. and so they would pay for everything and kind of take care of me and at first that worked really well but then after a few times I would finally meet like my match and a man that would use and abuse me as well Mm. because I was taking the money. Now you're my property and I will abuse you. And so, and then in my mind, this is where, you know, drugs no longer were um, helping me through life. I was thinking I am so worthless because of what I am doing that I deserve this. Every time I would like, get abused, I would say, I deserve this. Hmm. This is exactly what I deserve.
0: So now you find yourself back in a dark room by yourself and not in a good spot.
2: Exactly. In this prison. I remember one of the last times, um, one of the last men that just like completely abused me, he was going to move me to Idaho and I was going to get sober out there. And I remember I just had all these bruises up my back from him just abusing me. Aww. And my mom just begged me not to go. And um, she's like, he's going to kill you out there. And I, I was like, well, let me stay with you then. And she couldn't do it. Because I was so toxic. Like, I was such a tornado. She's like, I can't yeah. have you live here. So, like, that's kind of, like, where I was at this crossroads. And I remember I went to Walmart. And, of course, I was high all over the place. And I bought these things. And it was a week before I was supposed to leave. And um, I get stopped. And I had felony warrants. And I get stopped for shoplifting. But I didn't shoplift. Um I just looked so suspect while shopping Mm -hmm. that they stopped me and I pulled out my receipt and they had a cop there anyway. And she's like, I'm so sorry, but I have to take you in. You have warrants. Like they didn't charge me with anything because I didn't steal.
1: But they caught you on the
2: warrants. Yeah. And it saved my life. It saved me. Like what an intervention, a divine intervention for me um, to just like get – I couldn't save myself. So that's kind of how I would always end up in jail would be like these divine interventions. But this was one of the final ones. Um,
0: what does your rock bottom look like?
2: Oh, When I stop digging. <laughs> um, my rock bottom, my final one. Oh, So I reconnect with my dad and I get there and I move out to Orem, Utah County because I'm like – there's nothing out here. I'll be okay.
1: And I start. <laughs> you, you know, there is, right? I think she found it. Okay.
2: <laughs> I did. I found it.
1: She snorted.
2: <laughs> I found it, but my dad was actually helping me and it really did something for my heart because we just got close. And, um, but then I relapsed, right? Cause I just, nothing was really being addressed. I was just moving locations. Um, so again, I end up, I end up in West Valley, um, and you know, going down, I mean, going with this person that I had just met because I needed someone or, so, somewhere to stay and red flags were going off, like, don't go to this house, please don't go to this house. And I went anyway, cause I didn't have anywhere to stay. And, uh, I was sexually abused and I had to like escape out of this window. Oh my! Gosh. Yeah, it was crazy. That, but anyway, so I go to my probation officer and for the first time I look at him dead in the face and I said, I am IV using drugs and I need help. And he's like, we need to put you in jail, get you sobered up and then we'll figure it out. And so he did exactly that and that was fine you know but when you think about it when I think about it and I look back and it's like I go through this trauma and I get thrown in jail so I'm like again the shame the trauma that just keeps coming I don't deal with it I just put another thing on top of it so I get out of but jail. But that's what you were
1: equipped to do at that point in your life, right? Like, For sure. You hadn't ever had the the training or the help or the support Resources. that would teach you to do anything differently. So it's regretful to think back and say, oh, I just stuffed it away. But I don't know what else a person who'd had the life you'd had up to that point would do.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Like, how could I? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of crazy because like, when I look back, I'm like – why did I go down this path? That's not how I was raised. It's not like my very beginning upbringing, my crucial years. I was so loved. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just not how it should be. But so it now was.
0: you find yourself in jail, and do they find you a treatment center?
2: No. Well, they find me an outpatient. I go there, and of course, I relapse, and I relapse pretty hard. And again, I look at my probation officer, and I said, "I need help." But this time I found myself a residential treatment program and that's where I'm going. And he's like, all right, let's go. So I went to the Haven in Salt Lake City and it was exactly what I needed, man. Uh, I was there for 94 days and in the residential part and my sponsor told me, you know, you just need to do sober living. So I did sober living for 14 months, dude. Mm. yeah I just lived there for 14 months I remember the first time I paid rent by myself with my own money I cried (laughs) because I was just so grateful
0: yeah for sure that's wonderful yeah and so now you're living the sober life you're getting a job and everything's good
2: yeah
1: what uh treatment modality did you connect with in residential like what what kind of felt like oh I this is you said it's just what I needed what was that?
2: For me, the funny part is my dad got sober in 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and so when I got there and it was introduced to me, I knew it would work. Cool. So I finally followed in his footsteps, and that was where I built my foundation for recovery was the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Anonymous. Um, And I went to, oh my God, like a meeting a day for probably- that entire stay in sober living. Mm, so 90, 90 and 90. 90 and 90, but, yeah. and then some. And I sponsored women and I built this beautiful community of women around me, which is exactly what I needed because that tenderness and that love and like lifting, and that's exactly what I needed. And in that time too, I went, so University of Phoenix actually uh, are like, clinicians training and going to school and so i found a free clinician and i saw him once a week every saturday for six months straight and that's great oh my god woo! save me i like could move on
0: and now you're living in sober living you're paying your own rent uh you're working in the recovery community oh yeah and you're doing wonderful things yeah uh off air you told me about this thing and i think it was the fifth step
2: oh fourth step
0: and uh, you put two things out there
2: oh yeah so my fourth step i put it's this fears list and i have this fear i have this innate fear of getting sober and then just dying like Mm -hmm. that was such a crazy fear for me and at four years sober me and my sponsor were laughing because it made it to every fears list, it was on the top and then I get diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, stage 2. Wow. And
0: you've just been in the fight <laughs> of your life. Yeah. Uh living on the streets, uh abuse, uh you know, j- I mean j- just craziness. Craziness. Um and you beat that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And four years sober, you're diagnosed with breast cancer.
2: Yeah. Stage 2. So me and my sponsor, like, we cried, but we laughed. We're like, of course. Of course, God, like, here, <laughs> I never one fear and you're making me face it, that's beautiful. Uh, I'm not ready. <laughs> I don't want to do this. But I did it. And so I went and looked at my doctor. And at first we thought it was just going to be like a quick little surgery. And she said, because of the tumors and the lymph nodes, you have to do Freaking eight months of chemotherapy, uh, double mastectomy, and then radiation. And so.
0: At any point during this in the bad news, um, do you feel like you're on the verge of a relapse? Was that ever an option? Did it strengthen your recovery? I mean, how, how did you deal with that? Because now you're presented with a real, I mean, not a real, but but something with a sober mind. And you've got your faculties and you've now got resources. Yeah, uh, and, and you can understand and tackle a problem a little bit different than you have in the years past. Yes. Did that help you?
2: Um. Yeah. Like I didn't think about using one time. I looked at this thing and I'm like, let's go. Like I know I can do this. I had a fight for my life before. This will be cake. And that's basically what I said. And then I like laughed because I would get, you know, dope sick off of heroin. And I'm like, pfft. I've been dope sick. I can handle chemotherapy. Yeah. <laughs> it's so different. Like I could yeah. not. <laughs> but what's crazy is because I built this strength within and with the universe. Uh, community. Community. Oh, my God. They did a fundraiser for me, dude. A softball mm. fundraiser. I didn't have to pay a single medical bill.
1: That's wonderful.
2: Like oh, oh, thousands of people showed up. It was beautiful. But when I went from bed to couch to couch to bed, bed to couch, like that's how sick I was during chemotherapy, but I never once felt alone inside and I just knew that I could do it. Um and I did. And I had my significant other who was great with me just the whole time, great girlfriends. Um but by the end of it, I was beaten, you know, I was beaten. Um so, I definitely went and sought outside help for that and did some EMDR therapy, which was so good for me. Oh, I quit working in recovery. So, I'd done admissions for a lot of years and I worked at a few different treatment centers and, you know, I was felt like an advocate to get people into treatment. And then when I came back after chemotherapy and all these uh, medical bills that had stacked up and I really saw what it's like to just be sick and dying, um and not being able to like get help. I changed career paths completely. I just didn't have the same fire (laughs) for it anymore. I was like, you know, I really want to work with having the insurance companies take care of their members. I need that. I need to do that. So I quit, changed directions. Um I begged this one bill this billing company I work for, Meridian. It wasn't hiring per se at the time. Um, the owner I knew from recovery, um, and I just kind of begged him. I was like, "Just take me on part time, dude. Just, just I'll show you. Like, I'm a really hard worker." And so I went and did frontline staff, which I hadn't done for years at a different treatment center at Aqua. It was beautiful, and so I could afford to become uh, work at this billing company, and I did. I worked so hard, and I got there full time. And I'm just now I'm the CEO of it, but
0: Wow, that's amazing. Love
2: that is it.
0: persistence
1: pays the bills, doesn't it?
2: It sure does. Yeah. And so, yeah so now you're an
0: advocate for those in recovery getting the help they need from the insurance companies. Yes. So you're the which one which is
1: highly needed. That's so you call tremendous. up and
0: go, "Hey, you guys need to pay for this. Their life is on the line. They're not here just for 15 days. There's not a step down. Some cases there are, but they need the best care possible, and this is what it is. And so you pay up.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I love that. We have the clinician's notes and we present those notes, but we present it in such a way that it's like, no, like this is what it's at. Tell me why. Tell me why you think that they shouldn't be at this level of care they meet medic- medical necessity and then goes the billing process right we have to bill for that and make sure everything's perfect with a rendering provider because they have all these different things
1: oh it's complicated it yeah. really is yeah it's like ikea instructions it's worse, it's it's worse like I got yeah. yeah what's yeah. going on it's here worse.
0: so what does life look like for sammy right now
2: oh my gosh it's pretty beautiful man uh I mean, I have a great relationship with my dad. He, I'm he just got 19 years. I'm so proud of oh, him. No, that's that's great. Oh yeah. my god, I'm so proud of him. Uh, beautiful relationship with my mom, um, my sister. I still make an amends to her. Uh, I, I just love her like my family. Oh my god, she is your family. She is. Yeah. I, like I love her. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't always that way because she did not. I was her older sister that just destroyed tornado you know what i mean yeah my little brother i can disclose this i asked him so my little brother uh, also ever since we were young he struggled with mental health like he was this ball of anxiety everywhere and um then he moved to alabama on his own and i just knew he wasn't okay like i felt it in every fiber of my being and so he was struggling with alcoholism so i went Got on a plane, didn't tell him, flew out there, showed up on his doorstep, and I said, you need help. Here's the treatment I have before you. Uh, let me know when you're ready. And he wasn't ready then, but a month later he called me. And, um, oh, that's great. Yeah, he just got a year too. Oh, oh that's, that's amazing. Fantastic.
0: Dude. Look at you helping.
2: I know, where it matters. Give me that's
0: that's great. So life's better than you ever could imagine.
2: Uh, by far
0: because I, I feel that every day I wake up and I go I can't believe this is the life I get to live because I know 4 years ago in the dark place I was and I was like I was like you I was like I I don't know if I can live like this
2: yeah dude I don't
0: want to live like this but I don't think life's going to get any better and here it is better than I ever imagined
2: we got to cheat cheat sheet to life it feels like
0: we got a a second shot and some of us is our third and fourth and i'm making the most out of it but i understand my addiction i understand the disease i give it its importance and it's play part in my life i mean you've got to understand that and 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 i think you're doing it wonderfully and i think you're amazing Doctor Matt, what are your thoughts on Sammy the Sam Anderson?
1: (laughs) The Sammy the Sam. Uh, I love your advocacy, and I think that you have found. I love it when I see a person that's found the best fit for them. You know, whether it's in a relationship or in their their profession. uh, I think you found a wonderful fit for your personality to be an advocate, because I can tell you right now, as a provider of mental health services, I get so frustrated. With uh, the the lack of access and accountability that a lot of insurance companies provide their members who pay in every month, yeah. and so I am so grateful for people like you. And I think you have found a perfect avenue for your profession to be an advocate for people who need uh, need coverage. So thank you for doing that, and thanks for sharing your story. I mean, we she might be our first double recovery mm-hmm. because we got <laughs> she's recovered from from uh, drug addiction, and now she's recovered from breast cancer. That's impressive. You're an impressive person.
0: You, my friend Sam, are a warrior.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you guys for having me on here and sharing my story. I know it can get a little rough, but my God, does it get good, you know?
1: And that's a great thing for the listeners to remember, that no matter how rough it is, because it sounds like your story was pretty rough, it can get really great. Yeah, it can. Thank you. And don't
0: forget, we love you and we mean it. You're listening to Project Recovery. And in case you
1: forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's still a KSL podcast. I like that. Still. yeah. yeah. (laughs) Three and a half years later. Almost four. Almost four.